0: not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we approach your word, that through it we may see Christ of whom it speaks. It is in his name that we ask this. Amen. Please be seated. Today we are continuing our sermon series in Paul's second letter to Timothy. And so far, Paul has spent the majority of this letter encouraging Timothy in his work of ministry. Things have largely been positive. But now as we come to 2 Timothy 3, Paul changes his tone. He changes his topic a little bit. He begins talking about the last days. And when we hear that phrase, the last days, we sometimes think of the book of Revelation. We think about the end of the world. But what I want you to see this morning is that Paul isn't telling Timothy about something that's going to happen in some sort of distant future. When Paul says the last days, he's talking about this period of time in between Jesus' ascension to the Father on the one hand and his second coming on the other. Acts 1.11 says that this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And until that happens, until Christ returns, we are in the last days. That might sound a little strange because we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. But Paul tells us that in this last stage of human history between Jesus' resurrection and the future resurrection of all the dead, there will be difficult days. Paul describes for us this upsurge of evil in the world. In verses two through four. Paul says that people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is quite the list. And we might read this and say, okay, yes, that sounds like a bunch of evil stuff. But notice that Paul isn't just describing immorality in general. He's not describing generic evil. He's specifically describing severe levels of rebellion against God's law. In Matthew 22, Jesus summarizes God's law in two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul begins this list of immorality, this description of an upsurge of evil, by saying that people will love themselves and they will love money rather than their neighbor. And he ends this description by saying that people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So this upsurge of immorality that Paul is warning Timothy about isn't just generic evil, it is in contradiction to God's law. And this might not surprise us, the idea that there's evil in the world, that people who are outside of the community of faith don't follow God's law that shouldn't surprise us 1 John 5:19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one but the problem is Paul isn't pointing to evil that's out there in the world he says understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So yes, Paul is describing evil in the world, but he's also warning Timothy that this evil will disguise itself as godliness, Timothy needs to avoid not just evil in general, but specifically avoid people who appear to be godly, but in reality live lives that rebel against God. So this isn't about an obvious evil that's outside the church, but rather a hidden evil within the church. Paul goes on, avoid such people... For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. I want to be really clear about who Paul is discussing here. Who is Timothy supposed to avoid? Paul is not talking about Christians who sin. There are lots of places in Paul's letters where he talks about what we are to do with sin within the church. He talks about how Christians who are united to Christ still struggle with sin. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul is describing false teachers within the community of faith that use their knowledge and their power over others to deceive and enslave God's people for their own personal gain. Paul is talking about false teachers (coughs) within the church. Let's look more closely. Verse 8, Paul compares these false teachers to Janus and Jambres. Of course, we all know the story of Janus and Jambres, don't we? Okay, maybe not. So if you don't know these names, if you don't know who these guys are, you've never heard of them before, that's okay. They're not mentioned in the Bible. So Janus and Jambres are names that are given to Pharaoh's magicians from the story of the Exodus. So you might remember this story. Uh, In Exodus seven, Moses and Aaron go to the courts of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they instruct him to release the people of Israel. Exodus seven says that Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Moses and Aaron show Pharaoh the power of God, and Pharaoh's magicians imitate that power. The result is that Pharaoh hardens his heart and doesn't release Israel. And so later retellings of the Exodus story give names to these unnamed magicians. They become known as Janus and Jambres. This is sort of like what happens with the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew talks about these Magi These wise men who come to see Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us their names. He doesn't tell us how many there are. And yet, when we retell that story, we talk about the three wise men. We even give them names, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. A similar thing is going on. Paul is referencing these characters that Timothy would have been familiar with from these retellings of the story of Exodus. So, just like Janus and Jambres, Pharaoh's magicians, set their power against the power of Moses and the power of God, these false teachers are infiltrating the church. They creep into households, dividing the people of God against one another. They capture weak women. That phrase might seem a little strange to us. Here, Paul is playing with stereotypes about women in the ancient worlds the idea that women are inherently spiritually immature or more susceptible to persuasion than men. And I want to be clear, is Paul saying that all women are more easily deceived by false teachers than men? I don't think so. 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy to treat older women as mothers in the faith. 2 Timothy 1, Paul points to Timothy's mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois, as the source of his own faith. On the other side of the coin, are men somehow immune from being deceived by false teachers? Absolutely not. But Paul is using this phrase, weak women, as an example of how these false teachers operate, they specifically seek out people within the church who are vulnerable and spiritually immature to lead them away from the truth. Paul says that the victims of these false teachers are burdened with sins led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Instead of the freedom of the gospel, all these false teachers have to offer is an illusion. They are, after all, magicians. These magicians lure their followers with the illusion of the truth, the appearance of godliness, but end up burdening the souls of their victims and using them for their own personal gain. Paul says in no uncertain terms that they are corrupted in mind. They are disqualified concerning the faith. They don't have the power of truth on their side. All they can do is victimize and deceive God's people. These are not pastors. These are predators. We are still in the last days. So Paul's warning for Timothy is a warning for us too. And when I look at Paul's warning to Timothy, one of the most frightening parts is in verse 5. Paul says that the false teachers he's warning us to avoid have the appearance of godliness. Paul is saying that in some way, these false teachers will look like us. They will look like faithful followers of Jesus. Sometimes when we think about false teachers, we think about people who contradict the gospel in an obvious way. If someone were to show up here at Redeemer talking about how the gospel is that we can earn our salvation by doing good deeds, I think we would pretty quickly be able to sniff that out as false teaching. That is obviously in contradiction with the gospel. Or something like the prosperity gospel, that's common in our country. The idea that if we just have enough faith and do the right things, God's gonna make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. I think most of us would pretty quickly call that out as false teaching. We can spot that sort of thing from a mile away. But what happens when someone who checks all of the correct doctrinal boxes Someone who says they believe the same things that we believe, who has the appearance of godliness, the illusion of orthodoxy. What happens when someone like that creeps into the household of faith in order to victimize the vulnerable and lead God's people astray? To put it another way, how do we tell the difference between a sorcerer and a shepherd? How do we make sure that we're not following a magician when we should be following Moses? One of the great temptations here is to put our trust and our hope in our theology or even our system of church governments. Here in the Presbyterian Church in America, we have doctrinal standards, we try to apply them consistently with wisdom. This is good. Watching our doctrine closely is a good biblical thing. We ought to do this. But we are also fooling ourselves if we think that doctrinal purity is an ironclad defense against corrupt teachers who want to harm God's people. I've been in the PCA for 33 years. That's enough time for me to learn that Presbyterianism does not solve all our problems. (laughs) Reformed theology, even just plain old Christian orthodoxy, do not grant us a magical immunity to evil. Presbyterian church governments, even wisely applied, cannot shield us from the schemes of sorcerers. Even good things like sound doctrine, careful church government can be weaponized by bad actors who mean God's people harm. We need only survey any number of instances in which a pastor has become a predator and victimized someone under his care to discover a common through line. Well, he had good theology. He preached good sermons. He was well-respected by people in his denomination. He seemed like a holy man. He had the appearance of godliness. Does this mean that we shouldn't care about doctrinal fidelity or work to put policies in place that protect God's people? Not at all. But even spiritual predators can have sound theology. Even men with a corrupt mind can say the right things and maintain that appearance of godliness. So I ask again, how do we tell the difference between a sorcerer and a shepherd? What is our defense against the infiltration of evil? How does the folly of the magicians become, as Paul says in verse 9, plain to all? I think Paul tells us. Verse 5, once again, the magicians will have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They have the illusion. They lack the power. What is the power of? of godliness? In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul says that God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. The power of godliness is the Holy Spirit. We are living in between Christ's ascension and his coming again. And until he returns, God is present among us through the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that empowers us not to simply claim Christ with our mouths, but to truly walk in newness of life as Christ's disciples. Just like in Pharaoh's court in Exodus 7, these magicians can imitate but not duplicate the power of God, you can't fake the Holy Spirit. This is why scripture consistently insists that the character, the renewing, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is vitally important for leaders in Christ's church. When we only look at the product of someone's ministry, we're going to miss the truth of their character. So what does this mean for us as a church? How should we live so that we can make much of the work that God is doing through his spirit and also resist the sort of predatory evil that Paul is warning us about? That's a really large question. That's a question that deserves much more discussion and reflection than I can offer in this sermon this morning. I can't give you the definitive word on this, but let me at least begin to address it in this way. When you become a member of Redeemer, you take membership vows. And if you remember here, you may not have thought about this in a while. The final vow that we ask prospective members to take goes like this. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church, and do you promise to study its purity and peace? I want to bring to your attention that last clause. Do you promise to study its purity and peace? That word study there is being used in kind of an old fashioned way. It doesn't mean study as in to study an academic subject or to gain intellectual knowledge about something. It means study as in to earnestly desire and pursue. So what we're asking members to agree to is, do you promise to earnestly desire and pursue the purity and peace of the church? The reason I bring this up is to say that when we agree to come together as the body of Christ here at Redeemer, we commit to pursuing the purity and peace of the church together. We make that our common cause. We commit to building up one another in Christ, to living peaceably with one another, to cultivating a culture of forgiveness and reconciliation, seeking the truth of Scripture together. And this happens not only here on Sunday morning, but in our life together throughout the week, in our small groups, in prayer meetings, in shared meals, families, around their dinner table. And if you're a member here at Redeemer and you haven't yet fully engaged in that life of our community outside of Sunday morning, our pursuit of purity and peace together, I urge you to do so. The reason is this. When we earnestly desire and pursue the purity and peace of Christ's church together, we deprive Satan of the opportunity to divide us with lies and false teaching. When we are looking past the appearance of godliness, when we are watching closely for the movement and work of the Holy Spirit, we make it that much harder for false teachers to victimize the vulnerable. And if you're outside the community of faith this morning, Maybe you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're returning to the church after some time. You may be wondering if the church is a safe place to be. There's evil outside in the world. There's the potential for false teachers and danger inside the church too. How can you have hope that the church will truly point you to Christ and not expose you to falsehood? the hope that the church offers is not ultimately a hope in the church itself. Our reading from Deuteronomy this morning reminds us that our hope is not in pastors, it's not in churches, it's not in denominations, but rather in Christ himself. Deuteronomy says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. I wish I could stand here and tell you that the church is bulletproof. I wish I could. That is a promise that I simply can't make. But God is a God who does enact justice. He is a God who does make and keep promises to his people. Christ has died for your sins. Christ has been raised for your justification. And if you put your faith in Christ, you receive an unbreakable promise that God will raise you to life again at the last day. And no matter what else happens, no matter what sort of evil attempts to infiltrate Christ's church, God will keep that promise. And the deposit of that promise is the Holy Spirit. One of the stanzas of the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, goes like this. The church shall never perish Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. The way that the church prevails is not through teachers, whether faithful or false, The church prevails through the work of the Holy Spirit and the promises of Christ. And he will be with us to the end, even in these last days. Let's pray. O Lord, these are difficult days. The evil that we see in the world leads us to doubt your goodness and question your promises to us. But like the hills that stand around Jerusalem, we pray that you would encircle your people, protect us by your Spirit, give us eyes to see the Spirit's work, and give us strength to resist evil and hearts that seek the good of our neighbor in obedience to Christ. It is in his name that we ask this. Amen.